90% of startups fail. Just 10 out of every 100 last. Mercury exists to close that gap with banking engineered for the startup journey. To offer a product crafted to help you scale with safety and stability. To go beyond banking and provide access to the foremost investors, operators, and tools. So more startups become success stories. Join over 100,000 companies banking with Mercury at mercury.com. Mercury is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group and Evolve Bank and Trust. Members FDIC. Swisher and you're listening to Sway. Vladimir Putin's recent invasion has been playing out at various levels. In addition to horrific ground attacks that have led more than a million people to flee their homes, there are also two other theaters of war. The first is an information battle playing out on screens and social media platforms as Putin seeks, unsuccessfully in my opinion, to lie about the reasons for this war and hide his losses. And then there's the evolving cyber threat, evident after Russian malware targeted Ukraine's government, websites, and banks. We're still understanding exactly how these information and cyber conflicts will escalate, what damage they'll do, and what the right role is for the U.S. government and American companies. I wanted to discuss this all with my guest today, Clint Watts. He's a research fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, specializing in Russian disinformation. And he has a background in military and intelligence, having previously served as a U.S. infantry officer and FBI agent. We taped this conversation in two parts. The second half, which deals largely with the cyber threat, was taped last week. But the first half about the information war was taped over the weekend. No, that's not because Clinton and I had nothing better to do with our Sundays. It's because on Friday, Russia ratcheted up information crackdowns in a number of ways including a block on access to Facebook in the country. The Russians also sent warning letters to Google and TikTok. It all suggests that Putin may be trying to drop a new information iron curtain between Russia and the West. So lots to talk about today. Clint, welcome to Sway. Thanks for having me, Kara. Thanks for coming back to tape with us as the news moves so quickly as it has over this weekend. When we last spoke, I think the war itself, the physical war, is not going well for the Russians, but brute force does tend to win out. But the information war becomes ever more important, correct? So week uh, two and week three will be the inflection point of how the war goes forward, both militarily and in the information tech space. On the military space, I'll start with that first. The convoy we all hear about is bogged down, but there's another axis of advance coming in around Chernayev. And if it links up with the convoy, it's going to change the game against the Ukrainian army. They'll start to get that envelopment they're pursuing around Kyiv. Separately, the Russians, where they didn't have success in the north, they're having success in the south. And they may be able to essentially seal off Ukraine from the south to the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov. And that would be devastating long run for them militarily. On the upside, you see the Ukrainian resistance getting more missiles, they're getting humanitarian support. So maybe they can last out because in terms of their military performance has been underestimated. On the information space, it really comes down to, does the West stay engaged in this conversation? Do they still care about what's going on in Ukraine? And then can Zelensky stay alive? Can his administration stay up on his feet? Can it keep broadcasting and inspiring? It's an influencer-led sort of diatribe you know, that's coming on both sides. All right. So just for clear, let's revisit the news that broke Friday and over the weekend. Let's get a bit of a TikTok. So first, Putin is cracking down with a block on Facebook. What is he afraid of? Putin is worried that 
Russians back home will learn what's really going on with Russian soldiers being killed inside Ukraine. And that's one part of it. The second part of it is Facebook has started putting in controls on their platform on Russian state media. And so this is a a cross-check, essentially a retaliation against Facebook to say, you put controls on me, I'm going to put controls on you. All right. So Facebook has put some things in place. Russia blocked them, but they left Instagram and WhatsApp up. Why is Putin doing that? Putin knows there's not many Russians on Facebook. The percentage is very low. They have VK, which is essentially a copy of Facebook, but it's the Russian version of Facebook. And that's for older folks. And Instagram is one of the most prolific and most important platforms inside Russia because that's where social media influencers and sports stars and everybody communicates essentially on Instagram. There's a lot of affinity for it. And WhatsApp is a communication platform worldwide. And it's a way that Russians can communicate And if you take that off, you're looking at a massive populist pushback inside Russia. Okay. So as you said, Facebook is small potatoes in Russia, estimated one in 10 people use it. They also sent warning letters to the bigger platforms, Google, which is YouTube, and then also TikTok. Is this the beginning of an iron curtain or is it impossible now to have one drop? I think both the tech companies and Russia are trying to thread uh, a narrow uh, needle inside those two, and it's not going to happen. All the Western companies are going to have trouble trying to do content moderation evenly and consistently. Meanwhile, Putin knows that if he shuts all those platforms down, he's going to have an information revolt internally, and he doesn't have a good substitute in that information environment. Imagine if you spend five hours a day on your phone, and suddenly there's nothing to look at for three of those hours, and you want to know what's going on, and all you're hearing is very lame Putin content. Putin's got a problem at home. Okay, talk about the role of platforms like Google, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok because they're trying to ensure they can play everywhere, but playing in some places means policing content in other places. For example, it was after pressure from the EU that Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok, and even Telegram scrubbed Russian state media. What is going on within these companies? Because they hadn't wanted to act before, and now they are. You know, for transparency, I've advised some of these companies kind of as they're working through their policies. You know, they don't take my recommendations all the time, but I think the era of we want to be a global company is over. And it's finally landing on them. There's three internets today. There's the Western EU, US internet. There's China's internet. And there's distorted internets in between, namely Russia, where authoritarians are always trying to control it or shape it or move it. And for a very long time, they've all tried to do two things. One, compete with each other as if they're equals, even though they offer different services, and that's not correct. And two, act like you can mold your company and be consistent and talk about freedom and democracy and all these things in open internet and contort to whatever gets you the most eyes you know, on your platform. Those days are over. And I think this is the rupture, you know, that tipping point where you're seeing them all swing back and say, okay, is this market in Russia worth it to me as a platform if my values were to, you know, let's buy the world a Coke and sing in harmony? The answer is no, they can't do it anymore. And what I don't understand and what I don't like about social media as an industry is they don't work together. When I've worked in cybersecurity and you show up, all the banks are there. And what do they do? They all try and protect the entire ecosystem against cyber attacks because they're not competing on security. The biggest weakness with social media is they don't work together. If they did, if they kind of coordinated, and you see them all now kind of like a domino, right? They all are trying to figure out what to do. Which is their way, yeah. Which is their way. Like, hey, if you really want to do something to Russia and be consistent, have a meeting, a Zoom call, whatever. Get everybody on there and be like, hey, we're going to do something with Russia. What do you guys want to do? Let's talk this through. You know, let's do it together. 
uh, it would be so much more consistent because if you don't, the bad actors go, okay, slip and move, duck over here, change my techniques. This is their terms of service, adapt around that, go to this platform, that's the audience I want to reach. Okay, so the platforms are doing well now, they just aren't coordinated enough from your perspective. Yeah, I, I think they're moving as quickly as they can in a crisis to try and figure out what to do, one. Two, I think it's way too early to know like what the effect is in terms of the information environment. I think third, we need to kind of look at, are we doing too much harm? So this is both in sanctions and in tech right now is like, are we shutting ourselves off from the Russian people to where now we're essentially making them vulnerable to where they can be manipulated? They're basically under Putin's control. And I think the last part is just they got to decide. This idea that they're going to represent democracy and human rights and the best values of the world, and then also try to play to every single market. They just need to come down and make a hard decision that our profits and growth are not about market access anymore. It's about making better services for people that share our values and share what we believe in. The other big news that broke Friday was bigger than any one platform. Cogent Internet announced Friday it would cut off internet service to Russian clients. This is an American company. It's the second biggest carrier out of Russia. It's a big deal. Can you talk about Cogent? Yeah, I think what's important is we've been talking about social media as uh, applications and platforms, right? Now we're talking about infrastructure. Totally different, which means this is infrastructure, not just in terms of internet access, but all services like booking tickets, airline flights, things that would make your economy run or getting turned off by outside. So they became reliant on services, global services in tech like Cogent that are backbones of all of their systems. And that's why you see lines like at subway stations, they need cash for the first time. I believe it was MasterCard and Visa, you know, are making changes. This is devastating. So we, we focus on the information environment, but I think over time, the economic impact of all these tech companies that provide the backbone of everything in the economy pulling out is going to cripple the country to a degree. Right, because they have in, Russia has integrated into the global tech economy for sure, using all our the back end services, whatever they happen to be, as opposed to say China, which has a lot of its own, has has its own homegrown stuff that works just fine. And they have tech companies like Kapersky, you know, for cybersecurity, which have always been under this sort of cloud because it's Russian. I mean, how are they going to sell it to the Western world at this point? I I don't know. And then you have both hardware and software companies getting involved here. Apple and Microsoft have stopped sales in Russia. Oracle, which is a huge database company, you wouldn't think that would be a problem, but all these companies have uh, links into the business in Russia. That's right. So anything that's in-country stays, but if it's not updated, it breaks and it becomes vulnerable for things like hacking. So it really puts a Western company that's still trying to operate inside Russia. We'll quickly have to make a decision in the coming weeks. Do we stay or do we go? And I think most of them are going to go because it's just going to be too difficult to operate. It's going to get pretty terrible inside Russia. And I think it just comes from everything, right? Imagine where are they going to have to go to now to get infrastructure, technology, like hardware and software. It's going to be China. China is going to be the one they have to go to. And they're going to be so much more stressed about China watching everything going on inside Russia than they're going to be about the West trying to watch everything goes inside Russia because Western companies would would bend. And Huawei or uh, any of these Chinese applications that come in are going to go, yeah, yeah, we'll totally do what you say. <laughs> That's not true. They're going to have, you know, all sorts of uh, surveillance tech built into everything that they're providing. Yeah, yeah. And which they're quite good at. For sure. In conflicts that I've seen over time where there's been some sort of tech-enabled populism or tech-enabled resistance, it's not long before two things happen. One, you have the hard shakedown in your face 
And second, you have a complete infiltration of Russian agents in each of these platforms watching everything that's being said. And sometimes it's showing up and doing intimidation. Sometimes it's even worse, particularly if you try and remain as an open journalist, I think, inside Russia on a lot of these platforms to to get the word out. It's going to be a, a very, very challenging and dangerous situation for them. So one of the things I noted was that Putin has to toe a very fine line here to show muscle and also not alienate. I think that's that day has passed for him. Is it going to backfire when Russians notice? I would assume it's just a it, it's slowly the penny drops for this population, correct? He's got a disaster on his hands for a couple of reasons. Militarily, even if he is successful, he's taking casualties. That will filter back home. You cannot disinformation your way out of 10,000 dead. It's just not possible. Right. And you're going to have war wounded. The mothers in Russia have always been sort of the pushback against Putin during these conflicts. This is going to be next level scale. I think the other thing is in warfare, it's easy to invade. It's hard to occupy. And the big miscalculation was he wanted to do this political coup, topple Zelensky, install his own government to essentially administer the people. That's not going to happen. Now he's in the insurgency, counterinsurgency game, even if he wins. I was on a panel with uh, Dr. John Nagel, who wrote the counterinsurgency book. He's like, I would estimate it would take 800,000 Russian soldiers to secure Ukraine because there's intense resistance and this isn't going away. I think third, you got oligarchs, money, just the economic damage that's been done. This will not settle down at home. And for those that have had the open markets, the open economy, you know, more open economy, more open information space, when these things start trickling and shutting off, you're going to see two things. One, those that can flee will. Who are those that flee? Those with money. And those that stay, there's going to be fights and wars. And so my big worry is that we're worried about Kiev falling today. I'm worried about Moscow falling between day 30 and six months from now. Mm-hmm. He's going to throw everything at the wall to try and convince Russians that things are going well, that the war was justified. And if he gets into trouble or the West really mounts a coordinated defense, he's going to say, look, they're doing it to us. I have to defend us. It's defensive. It's defensive. And will they buy that? I don't know. I think it's starting to break. The one thing also I want to add just on the tech picture is we always talk about coordinated and authentic behavior and bots and things like that. No, no, no. This time it's coordinated, authentic behavior, meaning on TikTok, if you go, you'll see Russians, influencers saying the same script over and over and over again. They did this when? During Navalny proness. You know, they go and try and hire influencers on Instagram, you know, TikTok or coerce them. I don't know how they do it. So this is going to be the problem, I think, for the tech platforms. If they do stay open inside Russia is how do you police something that people are voluntarily saying? I don't, I don't know. I, like, I don't know how they write the rules for that. And that's where everything's going, I think, over time. Do you have a sense of what information is trickling through to the Russian people? Can we track that? It is anecdotal and qualitative. It's not quantitative. You can't really know for sure. You don't get the kind of views and shares and likes that you would get from analytics we get in the West. You can see posts that will go up, get lots of views, lots of discussion, and then vanish. So if you can capture that, and I think that's for reporters, journalists, and researchers right now, capture everything in real time because it may not be there you know, much later. Um, no. And I don't think we will until we see if narratives of the Russian diaspora and the West are starting to surface and be repeated and we hit a Wuhan moment, meaning you might have remembered when at Wuhan, a doctor, right? He posts and says, this COVID-19 is super dangerous. 
you saw such a populist uprise inside China that they couldn't police it all because of the volume. They couldn't take it all down. They couldn't censor it all. Russia, I think the thing to look for in the next two weeks is, does it have a moment where populism around what's going on in Ukraine, the deaths of soldiers, our economy, losing information, if you see an upswell of that to where they can't knock on doors and tell people to take down posts, if they can't technically pull that stuff down, they got a big, big problem. And that's where you could see this sort of info revolution take hold. That's where I will look for as sort of a tipping point. Now, one of the things that's been effective also is Zelensky is winning the narrative war, which must piss Putin off. He's addressing people on Zoom. Um, and there's falsehoods that the Ukraine government is putting out, which is seen as adorable as opposed to what Russia does. Can you talk about this? I, I, I'm not a Russian apologist, but some of the lies are just, that's what they are. They're propaganda, you know, back and forth. And much of it is clearly what's happening there. But how do you look at this and him using information strategically? Whether it's sports, politics, or war, people want their team to win. And I think that's what you see play out in social media right now. Zelensky, I mean... He was made fun of for being an actor-comedian. Wow, it's a great time to have an actor-comedian. He's really good on camera. He gives wonderful speeches. He's the guy you need in a moment like this. And you can see his popularity swing around. He's a great influencer, and he understands the media. And if you're going to have a president that's under siege, this is a perfect person for it. I think he's remarkable. He's really galvanized the will of the Ukrainian people. He did not flee, which a lot of traditional kind of politicians would probably have done. And so beyond that, I think in the information war, wow, Ukraine is a massive tech company. I mean, they have tons of programmers. Western companies used to outsource to Ukraine as a, hey, how do we get Russian talent, (laughs) but not get Russian controls, right? We have to watch and fact check as quickly on that end as we do on the Russian end to make sure that we really know what's going on. And I can't fault the Ukrainians for trying to use that because they're the underdogs, right? They're they're trying to use. I, don't know. I think there's plenty of real stuff. They don't have to make a ghost to thing. Uh, and ghost to key. I just think they should be be as open and honest as possible to to seem like not like like Putin. Like don't don't use Putin. I do. I'm just saying like I don't want the Ukrainians to put out disinformation. What I'm saying is I understand why they're trying to use everything at their fingertips to try and combat the narrative. They should stick to truth, in my opinion, because it's way more powerful than false. And then over time, you erode your credibility, and they need to maintain their credibility because the opposite side, Russia, is putting out a nonstop stream of disinformation to justify their actions. So if Ukraine's got to stay in that lane, or otherwise, it becomes the both sides thing. Both sides are doing both sides, both sides. And like you said, there's unbelievable footage, scenes, music, things coming out of Ukraine. Just, Just stick with the easy stuff. We'll be back in a minute. This podcast is supported by Carvana. Looking for a new set of wheels? Shop for your next car the convenient way, 100% online with Carvana. Whether you're shopping for a vehicle at your leisure or if you need to get on the road, Carvana makes it super easy and hassle-free to browse their massive inventory of cars, whenever, wherever. Plus, Carvana has thousands of quality cars for under $20,000. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to shop for cars the convenient and affordable way. 
Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half where you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are hand-picked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. We've seen narrative wars play out before. The Germans were experts at this in World War II, for example. We also saw plenty of misinformation during the Cold War era. And then, of course, there was the campaign for hearts and minds in the Arab Spring. So I asked Clint why this narrative war between Russia and Ukraine has captured the global imagination and why it feels a little different than the ones that have come before. Several factors have changed over the last decade that are important. One, cell phones in everyone's hands worldwide. Two, social media platforms of all stripes connecting everybody at the same time. But the bigger ones, just to be honest, are this is a predominantly white, predominantly Orthodox Christian population in Europe, and so the West cares. Having worked on Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, Syria over the last 15 years, which is how I got into this, I've never seen so many people care about what's going on. People see that fight and they see themselves. It's implicit bias in social media. You like information from people that look like you and talk like you. And you're seeing that kick into full gear um, with this battle. And people can identify with themselves, particularly in Europe. Poland, very worried about what's going on. Germany, all of a sudden has kicked up its military commitments. We begged them to do this since World War II, you know, with NATO and they didn't do it. So I think that is the biggest driver of it. I think where it gets weird Because there was is, imagery from these other conflict zones all the time and horrific imagery. Absolutely. And I think if you went to the Middle East today and listened to discussions, they're like, oh, everybody cares now. What about last decade when, you know, all of these invasions and battles and Assad is barrel bombing? Oh, you don't know what's going to happen in Kiev? Maybe you should have watched Aleppo or maybe you should have seen in Grozny. That's their perspective on it. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an important miss, which is the power of translate today compared to 10 years ago. You can engage with Russian content on Twitter or Google when you do a search on a website. You can read it now. It it almost magically switches, right? So that's allowing the West to engage in languages and platforms that they otherwise would have to, they wouldn't even know existed. You know, they wouldn't be able to compute it. Could this be a revisionist moment for platforms, something like Arab Spring, where they looked great and they celebrated themselves excessively, I thought, at the time? And can it pull them out of this sinkhole that's been January 6th, where they many of them look, you know, I've used the term handmaidens to sedition. Is this a moment for that? Yes, with one exception, which is they don't work together. Yes. 
they do not like each other. They that's what when people say big tech. I'm like they cannot stand each other. Largely, they don't like Facebook. Yeah. But and I think the other part is now there is a market edge to not police, right? Like certain platforms are going under the auspices that we will never tell you to take anything down. And so as long as that competitive space is there, you can't unify as an industry exactly because it is about competition then for who can keep more content up and more eyeballs on. But there is a bit of a loophole with Russia here. We'll do what the government tells us to do a little. So they're pushing the buck back. But here in the United States, they're not aggressive on content moderation or other countries where it's much more serious, like the Philippines. Um, People are watching Ukraine. We could find several Ukraines around the world right now where the Rohingya, those sorts of issues in Myanmar, um, Maria Ressa, you know, these are well known, but still not addressed. And so they're going to struggle. And that is something where if they work together, they could address those issues like they could help each other. Meaning a persistent rubric rather than this kind of on the fly, which seems to be the calling card of technology companies. Yeah. And on the fly always puts you in a vice because one regime or one set of regulations doesn't coincide with the other. And you're picking whose disinformation do we like? Yeah. Let's move from platforms specifically to cyber warfare, which is, of course, different than platforms. What is Russia's cyber strategy right now? Um, You've seen cyber attacks against Ukraine already, malware, et cetera. Some of it's getting caught in the banking system. So what is their strategy here and how much damage has it done? Yeah, so I, it's got layers in two directions. One, it's about availability, destruction, or espionage. You know, it's kind of like a way to think about it and what they're trying to achieve. Ukraine is always the center of the onion for them for cyber. The Ukrainians and the Russians have amazing programmers and computer scientists are very brilliant with tech. But they are stymied a bit because if they want to take over Ukraine, they don't want to destroy all of Ukraine. Right. <laughs> so, you know, they kind of, I think, are not going the destructive malware sort of approach inside the country too much because they were like, well, I might want to turn the power and the water and all these things back on. Um, separately, I think further abroad, what we forget is there's not an infinite number of hackers. So Russia's been able with their APTs. Um, these are people they hire. This is their intelligence and then they have an army of hackers they hire. Correct. Yes. And that's the strength of the Russian system is both have their own intel services, each with a hacker force, but then they can go after this very capable criminal underground at any moment and sort of bring them in and say, you are now a proxy force for us. They're running into obstacles now because there's like anonymous and all of these populist sort of groups are spying and that's causing them problems. Now they have, instead of always being on offense, they have to be on defense a little bit and thinking about defending themselves. Separately, I think they know that for the first time there's an escalation factor. Before, they could always hit the U.S. and we would say, let's negotiate. You got to stop it. Not this time. I think they are aware that whether it's the European countries or the U.S., that if they touch our power grids this time, our banking system, the lights go out, you know, in Moscow, we're going to do something. That's my impression. So I think for the first time they're having to create different guidelines about when they're going to use it. I think the biggest factor that we're not talking about is what happens if Putin loses or if he's losing? It's three-pronged, nuclear, cyber, and disinformation. It's his three asymmetric prongs against the West, and he'll focus in very close. So I'm now worried about Poland, for example. Lots of U.S. and Western banks have you know data centers, uh, tech in these countries. Hungary is another one. Germany, absolutely for sure. That's where I'm worried, and it's more what industry do they focus on? Is it communications with uh, availability, this DDoS kind of stuff that you've seen in them do? Or do they go really strong and knock out something that causes pain in the West beyond oil prices? Mm -hmm. What's your worst-case scenario? Putin loses. 
And I don't like the nuclear discussion right now because it's set up on Cold War dogma and classes that I had in the 90s and what I see Russia doing is not what I was taught in school at West Point in 1993. So my worst case scenario is Putin is losing. He has problems at home. It could be a Russian coup threat or a populist uprising way beyond the Navalny protest. Soldiers are dying. Maybe 10,000 have died at the 30-day mark. And he says, I'm going to use a tactical nuke to finish this off and bring Kiev to its knees, Zelensky to the table, and the West to stop barking at me. Wow. That, I find that in the nuclear discussion, we're not talking enough about Putin will not lose. He's not going to let that happen. And you have a guy who's isolated, uh, rumors of health risk, like maybe he's sick. If he's isolated, worried, and all that matters to him is his place in history, which is I'm the one who retook Ukraine. I'm the one who restarted Russian greatness. Why wouldn't he use a nuke, whether the West did anything at all? And that's where I'm most scared, I think, at this point. A tactical nuke. Yeah. It would not be this uh, day after movie, you know, sort of thing. It would be strategic use of it to win and end the conflict. But the latch is off then for other places. Once someone does it, that's really, I think, the problem. Um, One of the things, we have an enormous surface area of attack, digitally speaking, Um, Here's some tape from President Biden. If Russia pursues cyber attacks against our companies, our critical infrastructure, we are prepared to respond. For months, we've been working closely with with the private sector to harden their cyber defenses, sharpen our ability to respond to Russian cyber attacks as well. What did you hear in that? Is Biden saying the U.S. will only get involved if Russia strikes first, defense, or do you feel like that there's more offensive ideas in mind? I took it as similar to the nuclear posture. We're only going to do something if Russia does something first. I think the problem is how do you brief to the world that Russia did something first? Like, it's very difficult to know. I think the second part is if you're the rest of the world, you should be in a state of panic because who can bounce back the quickest? Those with the most modern software and patches and infrastructure and better tech and professionals. Who doesn't have that? Lots of countries in between. I think this is the difference between Russia and the U.S. Russia doesn't mind carpet bombing and cyber. And the U.S. has to be surgical. And how do you manage surgical in cyberspace? I don't think we've ever quite figured it out. And maybe this is the conflict where we do, or maybe we don't. So what are the areas you're most worried about for companies? Um, more solar winds attack, colonial pipeline? I think solar winds was more espionage and being able to just infiltrate as many systems quickly. I'm more worried in terms of energy because that's the vice. Why not bring Colonial Pipeline back or bring us to our knees in terms of energy at a time of high inflation? I think that would be where I would worry the most. I think the other is in communication. Man, if you want to send the U.S. into panic, knock out uh, any of the big platforms or, or communication services. Turn Netflix off for an hour and you got a gasp, you know, in this country. Mm-hmm. We're not particularly resilient as a society that, okay, it will come back on. So I think he knows those are his two sort of best weapons. So- Stopping Netflix. Oh, no, I can't have whatever. Yeah, I think <laughs> if you want to get the West attention, take off the services, yeah. you know, that matter the most to them as individual citizens where they go, hey, wait, you know, I'm all for Ukraine, but like, let's get this together. I really want to have what I want. And Americans are particularly selfish in that way. I didn't get my Amazon in 14 seconds. What is that? I just thought of it. <laughs> exactly, I needed exactly. my toothpaste immediately. Um, should there be a, an international, the way we have nuclear uh, nonproliferation treaties, should there be that? And is it possible? Yeah, I don't know. You know, 
10 years ago, I remember going to like some of the first sessions in DC where they're talking about uh, cyber NATO and like attack on one is an attack on all and what will we do? And it was such a coordination issue. And I think part of it was NATO and the EU were not in alignment on tech. And a lot of that was about Huawei. I was in Brussels when they opened the Huawei Transparency Center. I asked a German guy, I was like, oh, you're not going to do this? And he said, well, I mean, are you going to spy on me or China's going to spy on me? It costs me half as much if China spies on me. And that was interesting perspective around how do we come to the table with all these partners to, to negotiate. So in that way, you bring us to China. And that's my last question. When you look at the threat of global cyber warfare, um, Russia, to me, is a minor player. They're very effective, small, nimble, irritating, effective in getting us to hate each other, essentially. But the real, everyone I talk to, China is 100% their worry in terms of dominance of software and hardware, dominance in telecom, um, our reliance on them as a country for manufacture. Do you think that's correct, that that's the worry? China is absolutely the biggest worry because they have all four layers, infrastructure, applications, content, and control of content. And so they can wall themselves off and still operate, you know, to a degree. And we are not inside their audience space. We're not inside their systems. We cannot retaliate in that way. Um, at least not, I'm not aware of it. Whereas they are in all of our systems. You know, they are building the components that's in our infrastructure. They are making the applications uh, that we are using. TikTok. Yeah, TikTok and other, just in terms of technical, you know. Um, and then they're making content on scale now. So like my team, we found social media influencers in 24 languages doing broadcast around the world every day from the Chinese state and their winning audience and we can't control it. So I think when I look at it across the board, yes, Russia is going to be a big deal and we have to worry about it. China is the, it is the juggernaut that's coming over the hill. Mm -hmm. And the one thing we should be watching out for or doing is what? I think the biggest thing is understanding if we're not allowed to be in their audience space, then why are we allowing them to be in our audience space? Uh, if we're not allowed to have companies uh, like Google or the big tech companies of Facebook, whatever they might be in their space, then how are we going to allow them in ours? There's got to be some equivalency there that we have to negotiate with them because right now they're taking it to us on all these Western platforms. It's not very effective because they're not particularly good messengers, but they're learning and they're getting better. Um, they're using money to buy up media outlets and tech companies. Gaming companies. Yeah. And where will social scoring systems come into the U.S.? It's not going to come from the government. It'll come through tech companies. Uh, they will march that out. Uh, you know, it, I just think we're totally unprepared and not really thought through what 10 years from now looks like. Uh, we see what 10 years ago in tech has changed. The next 10 years is China. Well, we will leave it on that note. Clint, thank you so much. This has been so helpful and I really appreciate all your insights. Thanks for having me. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naeem Araza, Blakeney Schick, Daphne Chen, Caitlin O'Keefe, and Wyatt Orm, with original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair, Michelle Harris, and Mary Marge Locker. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lynn, and Christina Samuluski. The senior editor of Sway is Naeem Araza, and the executive producer of New York Times Opinion Audio is Irene Noguchi. 
If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts. So follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, except for you, Vladimir Putin, you don't get anything. Download the podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening.